Good to see you, Oikos. Um, would you join me in prayer? Holy and gracious God, we just humbly come before you. And we bend our knees before you, praising you and worshiping you alone. For yours is the only name on heaven and earth we can call upon to be saved. And Lord, we ask that this morning, that as we come into your presence, that uh, you would slow down our minds, that you would um, calm our hearts, that you would relax our spirits, and that you would enable us to be loved by you. And Lord, as we pray all this, we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we have been kind of quickly going through the book of 1 Corinthians and Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And the theme you may have seen on the screen was set apart for God. And I don't know if you know, but in the Bible and even in the church, we have two holies. One is capital H holy, and the other one is small letter holy. And we think of capital H holy, that's associated with God and all the things that God is. That God is pure, that God is righteous, that God is perfect. And all the other attributes we can think of to describe God. Capital H holy. And then there's small h holy. Small h holy is a set apart. And it literally means that we have been taken from the group and set outside the group, set apart for God's purpose. Okay? So it's in that context that we're looking at the book of Corinthians and how that we are set apart. I want to give you, remind you of a little bit of context here that Corinth was in Greece, modern-day Greece, and Corinth was a city of about 90,000 people. The Corinthian church, historians say, was somewhere between 40 to 150 people. So maybe the size of us. But when I say church... It was very different from us in that they didn't have a wonderful facility like this committed exclusively for church activities. What they did was they met in their homes. Not that they didn't come together at times, but they were meeting in their homes and doing what you and I call church, okay? And as we talk about this meeting in the homes, I want to push the pause button just real quick and mention something to you. What we do here is really important, and we are following God when we come in here on Sunday mornings, and we will continue to do so, and we will worship our God. But as a church family, we also have what we call missional communities, and these missional communities are gatherings during the week, not here, in our homes, where we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ for the purposes of strengthening and encouraging each other, praying for each other, worshiping God with each other. And if you're not part of a missional community, you are missing out on a wonderful benefit of being a part of this church family. We have several different missional communities going on. Uh, Jason and Ashley have one not too far from here. Howard and his wife have another one that's closer to the University of Houston. David and his wife have one that's kind of in the Montrose. The Schmitz have one that is north of I-10 near Ella. Um... And then we have our covenant family that meets the end of each sun, uh, the last Sunday of each month. And maybe ask yourself, if you're not currently part of a, a missional community, just ask yourself in the quietness of your heart, is this something that maybe I should be a part of? Because what I can tell you is, as we try to go about meeting the challenges of our week, this is wonderful what we do here. And it helps. But the challenges of this world exceed just meeting together once a week and saying it's all going to be okay this week. This week when we meet together 
in our missional communities or however frequently we meet. It's that time where you get that extra encouragement, that extra strengthening to meet the challenges of this very, very difficult world we live in. Okay? So just a thought about missional communities. Um, the other thing that was interesting in the context of this Corinthian church is it was a confluence of three different cultures. On the one hand, you had the Jews. And they had this long and rich and deep history with God. They knew God as a creator. They knew the story of Adam and Eve. They knew the story of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the history. They knew how to worship. They had a lot of um, rules about eating and how you came to eat and what you did when you eat and what you could eat and not eat, as well as worship, what worship looked like in this long tradition and history that they had. But you also had what they would refer to as Gentiles. These were people who didn't grow up in the church. Okay? These were people who were Greek citizens who had basically known Greek mythology. Maybe you remember from school, Zeus, Apollos, Neptune. But the big one for them was Aphrodite. The goddess Aphrodite was about pleasure, about beauty, and about sex. I mean, who wouldn't be attracted to that, right? They even had a temple of Aphrodite in Corinth. So that was kind of the reference point they were coming from. They didn't have the tradition of the Jews. And on top of that, there was this Roman culture, this Roman power that ruled the politics, the economics, and the law. And the Romans, similar to the Corinthians, they had a bunch of gods. They even had one on par with Aphrodite. Theirs was Venus. And they were very much in, if it feels good, do it. And these things come together to make the church. So you can imagine the different ideas, the different opinions, the different thoughts, the different families of origin, all this difference coming together to be God's family. You can also imagine, perhaps for someone who grew up in the church and has always been in the church and has always known the church, how offensive some of the things that these Gentiles might do in terms of what they eat, in terms of what they say, their ideas. And for the Gentiles to come in with these people with all these religious things and how those things would come together. And it's into this confluence, Paul steps in. And he wants to talk to them about this confluence and what life looks like together. Um, I want to go back and review one quick thing because it's the foundation, it's the basis for this letter and the conversation that Paul will have. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, 4-8. 1 Corinthians 1, 4-8. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that mean you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to look at this word blameless for a minute, because this is the foundation that allows us to have this conversation. This wasn't the only time that, God, that Paul would use this word blameless. Two more examples, Colossians. 122. Colossians 122. Yet he has now reconciled you 
and his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, small h, and blameless and beyond reproach. Holy and blameless. Let's look at Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy, small h, and blameless before him in love. So you see the emphasis of blameless. And the reason I'm emphasizing that to you is because the Apostle Paul had a very deep understanding of blameless. He was a man that had gone into people's homes thinking he was right in doing so, dragging them out of their homes, women and children, taking them to be murdered, participating in murder, believing that he was doing the right thing. And Jesus comes to him and says, Paul, I'm going to take responsibility for what you've done. And he takes the responsibility for all the wrongs that Paul had done and puts it on his own body. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, my hope and my prayer that is in your heart, you would receive the truth that God has taken responsibility for you and his son. Whatever it is you've thought, whatever it is you've said, whatever it is you've done, any wrongness into your life up until this very moment, and even moving forward, Jesus took responsibility for it. And therefore, you are blameless and holy, set apart. And like the Corinthian church, in our, whole, in our blameless and holy, set apart status that Jesus has given us, now we have to learn a new way to live. Because we get to live in the freedom that we didn't previously have. So it's learning new things. For the religious folks of the time, it was saying, traditions are great, they're beautiful, and they're rich, and they're deep. Don't forfeit them. However, it was Jesus on the cross that has established your relationship with God, not your practices. And for those who didn't grow up in the church, it would say, it's Jesus on the cross that allows you and gives you the privilege to come before this holy and righteous God, capital H, God. And amongst the many things that this church and we are called to learn in this new life is proper relationships with each other. And one today I want to look at, an important one, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man, his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So what this is telling us is that God spoke all of creation into existence. Nothing came into existence apart from God. And then after he had spoken all of creation into existence, God got down on his hands and knees, formed man from dust, and breathed the breath of life in him, and created man in his image. And then he caused a deep sleep to come over Adam, and from his rib, God created woman. And in this creation, all of us have our origin from Adam and Eve. And all of us have a mom, right? Raise your hand if you don't have a mom. Okay? Some of you I wonder about. And in this text, what it is pointing us to, and you can't see it in this text, but in the Bible, when it says the man has his birth through the woman, it's a reference to 
our salvation that came from the lineage of Eve. And the important part of this is, is that all things originate from God. So therefore, God chose to give you life through your mother. And whether your mother was a good mom, an abusive mom, or anywhere in the middle, God chose to give you life through your mother. He also chose to give us salvation through Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, in the same way that you and I are born, Jesus made a woman's womb a holy place. Capital H. And so for all of us, by faith, the womb that we were conceived in and that we were born in was just as holy as the one Jesus was born in and conceived in. And whether your parents were married or unmarried, or you don't know who your father is, or you were conceived in a violent crime, that womb was holy. And what's more, God did this with loving purpose. Let's look at Jeremiah 1, verse 3. Sorry, verse 5. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Okay? Jeremiah 1 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Psalm 139, verse 13 says, for you, for you formed me in my inward parts, and you wove me in my mother's womb. And so God chose to give us life through our mothers in our holy wombs of our mothers, and it was God who wove and knit us for a loving purpose and with reason. And so this Mother's Day, we give thanks and praise to God for our moms, and we think that we have moms because it was all part of God's intended purpose and it was God's design and God did it in a loving way. All right, so now we move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so far, as we've kind of read through this, if we're not careful, it begins to feel like a lot of do's and don'ts. Don't do this, do this, et cetera, et cetera if we're not careful. But remember, the context here is context here is that in this blameless, holy, set-apart position that Jesus has given you in his death on the cross, in that position, we're called to live a new life. And Paul is trying to point the Corinthian church and us to not forfeit and forsake this freedom that has been given to us. So we have to learn a new way to live. And so far it seems a bit punitive in terms of do's and don'ts. But when we get into chapter 12, things begin to change, and it's more about some do things and how things work with us. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. However, you were led... Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of stuff here. I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to really know this, he's saying to them. Before God came into your life, before Jesus moved into your life and created this blameless, 
holy, set-apart position that you now have. Before that, you were led astray. And this word led, it's not like a dog with a cookie, you know, tricking you. This word led in the Greek context is a forced away from God's love. And then he says, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And it looks like it says that every time someone says Jesus is Lord, oh, it's the Holy Spirit saying it. That's not what it's saying. It is possible for a person to say Jesus is Lord and not believe in Jesus. It is possible. What it is pointing us to here is that it's also possible that a person, one of us, can say Jesus is Lord and be in agreement and covenant with the Holy Spirit inside of us. Okay? So we can say Jesus is Lord and be in agreement with the Holy Spirit in us. Therefore, if we can say Jesus is Lord in agreement, I can therefore think in agreement with the Holy Spirit, I can speak in agreement with the Holy Spirit, and I can act and live in agreement with the Holy Spirit. But the opposite is also true. I can have the Holy Spirit in me and be in disagreement. Okay? And by the way, when he says mute idols, he's mocking. Because he's saying, you know, Zeus and Apollo and Venus and all these other gods, they don't speak, they can't, they're mute because they're dead. All right. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 to 7. And here we're kind of getting in the meat of the substance. And, and, and the reason we're slowing down to look at this particular text is because this text lays the foundation and gives us a way at looking at the next few chapters, which can be kind of confusing. And Aaron will talk more about those next week. But having this foundation, this understanding, helps us to better approach the next coming chapters. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 and 7. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, it says, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. References the Holy Spirit. There are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. References Jesus. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons represents God the Father. References. So we see reference to the Trinity here. And the reference is that God and Jesus communicate to the Holy Spirit what the Holy Spirit is to do in our lives. And there's a word here that's a really interesting word that is manifestation. And it's an important word. When we look at this word manifestation, the Greek word phanerosis means to cause something to be fully known by clearly revealing and clearly and in some detail. Bring it to light. On the other, word, other, word, other hand, the English word that we know is manifestation. And the manifestation literally means something concrete and tangible that my five senses can perceive. Now here's the catch. We're referencing the gift of the Holy Spirit. We all receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in our baptisms. If you know uh, 2 Corinthians verse 28, 38, sorry, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So if you've been baptized, you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not some of the Holy Spirit, not a piece of the Holy Spirit, not a little bit of the Holy Spirit, but the entirety of the gift of the Holy Spirit is in you. And if you haven't been baptized this morning, please talk to one of us after church. We'd love to talk about that. So in this Holy Spirit gift, now we're going to talk about manifestation because the gift of the Holy Spirit is not perceivable by my senses. I can't touch it. I can't hear it. I can't smell it or taste it or see it. It's a gift that is in me that I can't perceive. Okay? But however, these manifestations can be revealed to my senses. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7. And now we're going to start looking at the manifestations, each one of them. And we're going to look at each one. However, in the gift of the Holy Spirit, the existence of all nine manifestations are in you. It's not like you only have one of these. They're available in all of you. It's God who will choose when to exercise that in you, but it's all available in you. You don't have a little bit of the Holy Spirit. You have the entirety of the Holy Spirit in you. These manifestations originate in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and God energizes different people at different times for the common good. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Emphasis here is that however God would choose to manifest the Holy Spirit in each one of us, the purpose of it is for the common good. Yes, I may benefit from it, but it's for the common good. Okay? Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 12.8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So, we look at two things here. Here's two of them. Wisdom and knowledge. And we categorize these under revelation. Wisdom is the Holy Spirit gives us a message about what to do in a certain situation. When we think of wisdom, we always think of, oh, that's an elder person, so they have wisdom. Or we think, oh, that's a really smart person, so they have wisdom. This is not that. This is God giving you a special information about what to do in a particular situation. On the other hand, knowledge, the Holy Spirit gives insight or information about a certain situation. It is possible that the Holy Spirit would give you knowledge, information, special insight into a situation, but not the wisdom. On the other hand, it's also possible that God would give you an idea about what he wants you to do in a situation, but doesn't necessarily give you the knowledge. He may give you both. However, the Holy Spirit in you would reveal knowledge and or wisdom for the common good to serve the common family. And by the way, knowledge is not somebody who's really smart. It's not people with PhDs. Just like wisdom is not people who've experienced a lot. This is the Holy Spirit in you giving you information about a situation or how he would have you move in a situation irrespective of what your socioeconomic status is, irrespective of what your education level is, irrespective of who you are in the community. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12.9 now. And now the other seven manifestations are listed together here. To another, 
faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy. Let's just leave it there for a second. Let's leave that text there. So the first one is faith. This is also one of those words that we should look closely at. When you think of faith, generally in our culture, and even in the church, typically what people mean by faith is that I'm really strongly convicted about something that I don't really know. And that's a horrible idea. That's not the faith that we look at when we talk in the Bible. This was made even a little bit worse by a famous guy by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Maybe some of you all heard of him. He wrote a famous book called War and Peace. And if you ever have like 10 years, you can sit down and read it. It's a really long book. Anyway, Soren Kierkegaard coined a phrase, take a leap of faith. He said, because you can never really know. So just jump out there. That's not what faith is in the Bible. A better word for faith and three words that are used interchangeably is belief and faith and trust. So whenever you see that word in the Bible, you can, see, you can interchange those. They're known as synonyms. Different words with the same meaning. But here, the word that makes the most sense for us in faith is trust. And trust is having the trust that when something is revealed to me by knowledge or wisdom, that it's God who's saying it to me. It's God who's communicating to me through the Holy Spirit. Trust is that Jesus on the cross gives me my blameless and holy set-apart position. And wherever there is trust, there has to be an object of trust. We put our trust not in some myth, not in an idea, not in a concept, not in a system, but we put our trust in a real and loving God who loved us so much that he refused to allow us to continue to be separated from him. Our trust is in an object. And furthermore, the object in which we place our trust manifests in our lives and proofs in our lives. We can see it in our lives. For example, you all see the lights, right? That's the manifestation of electricity. Can you see the electricity? God would be similar in our lives. He does manifest, and this Holy Spirit manifestation is clear and exact. And just, just a personal thought. Sometimes when I'm going through a bad situation, tough times, someone will always say, it's just a test. It's just a test. The truth of the matter is, that as we go about life, the object of our faith is being validated through the difficult times that we go through. Meaning that as I go through these difficult times and Jesus shows up and delivers me in all of these circumstances and situations that the world and my sinful flesh get me into, that my faith is validated, it's proven to be right. But God's not testing me to see whether I can get the answer right. All right, let's look at the next one. The working of miracles and the healing. This is when God gives you the knowledge and or the wisdom, because he could give you one or both. But he's saying in the wisdom aspect, I want you to move in this way. I want to use you in this way. 
And he would use you by giving you knowledge and or wisdom with faith that you trust what you are receiving is accurate and from God, that through me or through you, God is going to perform a powerful healing or miracle. And I say or miracle because sometimes healing could be in a miracle. But miracle could be separate from healing too. But the point is, it's not me doing anything. It's God choosing through the Holy Spirit, through me, to use his power to energize me to do something for the good, the common good. I think we kind of struggle with this one because, oh, healing, miracles, yeah, that's Old Testament stuff, right? I mean, that's Jesus' thing, you know, way back, back when. It, it doesn't work that way anymore. First Corinthians, I mean, sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Do we have that one up there? But you will, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even the remotest part of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And when we look at these, you know, the first two of knowledge and, and wisdom, those are revelation. But faith, trust, healing, and miracles, those are God's power being manifest. And every Christian has the gift of the Holy Spirit, and every Christian has the possibility in your life that God would do any of these manifestations if he so chooses, but he can't do it against your will. So the manifestation of any of these spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit in any of these ways is me going back to being in agreement with God, that God would choose through me to do what he's going to do. Um, back to, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, so that we can see those again, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy. Prophecy is God giving the knowledge and or wisdom, and me having the faith, that God is telling me, or wanting to utilize me, to speak something to someone else. And when I speak those words, that's the prophecy. We think of prophecy of being, oh, I'm going to predict what's going to happen in the future. This is communicating God's word to people. So you can see where, in terms of the manifestation, this one we all should long for, that God would speak through us to the people around us, and that God would particularly convey that message of, you are blameless, and you're holy, and you're set apart because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Acts 2.17 And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophecy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams, shall dream dreams. And the point here is that in the gift of the Holy Spirit that we all have received, God would most definitely desire to communicate his love to the people around us. The question is, am I in agreement with the Holy Spirit? Or disagreement? Go back to 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 9, please. 
Next we see, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, uh, please continue on, to another the ability to distinguish between evil spirits. This is when God gives you the knowledge and or wisdom and the faith that there may be the presence of a good or an evil spirit. This is another one of those ones where we kind of, eh, I don't know about that. And what we say is that we want to maintain the faith and innocence we have as children of God. But it's a fact that we encounter spirits in this world. In fact, if we look at Ephesians 6, verse 12, I think I have that one. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Holy Spirit may move in one of our lives to give us that knowledge and wisdom that we can trust and to be able to discern those spirits. But it doesn't mean that all of us do. Because again, the Holy Spirit decides how, when, and where to move. We are just the instruments upon which he moves. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. Um, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Actually, verse 10. So you remember the first two, knowledge and wisdom, are revelations. The next few are God's power being manifest. And now we get into what we call the worship part of the manifestation. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kind of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on tongues because I'm going to leave that one for Aaron next week because it's part of what we look at in the next couple of chapters. But basically, tongues is a communication from a believer to God in a discernible language, not a mumbling, not some gibberish, but a discernible language that the communicator, the person, if it were me, doesn't understand. But I'm communicating to God and the angels. And the Holy Spirit is doing that through me. But you see, there are also interpreters. And we could get into how this should look and what it should look like in terms of worship in a corporate settings, but when this happens, there may be someone who can understand and be able to tell you the sum and substance of what is going on in this strange language that you may not know. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So, in your blameless and holy, set-apart state, having received the gift of the Holy Spirit in its entirety, lacking of nothing. God decides how, when, and where He will manifest in your lives. However, for that to occur, God is not going to impose His will on me. But I can be in agreement with Him in my thoughts, in my words, and my actions. As I said, I wanted to look at this today because this becomes how God moves in us. And it becomes important to understanding what Paul's going to say in the next couple of chapters and why he's talking about these weird things. Um, and we, as a family, come together similar to that Corinthian church with all of this confluence of different families of origin, 
different cultural context, different ideas, different thoughts. But we also come together blameless and holy and set apart. And God is calling us to this new life that, quite frankly, is very challenging. Because I have to set aside whether it's my traditions and my religions that I think are the way, or whether it's the stuff that I brought in that I thought was right, which is actually wrong. And to learn a new way. And change is hard. Because the only one who likes change is baby with a wet diaper, right? <laughs> right? And sometimes they don't know either. Just ask Porter. So, therefore, let us come together, join our hearts together in the unity of the Spirit that we have as blameless, holy, set-apart children of God. And this morning, we're going to wrap up. We're going to close in a few moments of prayer. And I know Kenny and Adrian are going to be in the back. And if you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you to either come and receive prayer or to be here or here or standing somewhere in the church that if somebody wanted to, they could come ask you to pray for them, now's a good time to stand up. All right, let's close in prayer and then we're going to pause. And again, if anybody has anything, I'll be up here. Kenny's over there, Adrian is over there, and I'm sure a few other elders might stand up too. Okay? Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we just give you thanks and praise that before you laid the foundations of the earth, you knew us, that it was truly through our moms you've given us life with loving purpose and loving meaning, and those wombs were just as holy and sacred as the womb that Jesus was born of, and we give you thanks and praise that you did that out of love. And even when we have wandered from you, we've strayed from you, we have thought bad things and done wrong things and said wrong things, you would not let that stand. Jesus took responsibility for us, and therefore we are truly blameless and holy and set apart in him. So enable us that by your spirit we would learn to live the new life, the life which may be even unfamiliar. But we thank you, Lord, that you're all-conquering love has given us forgiveness, given us peace, given us your compassion, your mercy, and your grace, and this precious gift of the Holy Spirit in us. So let us be in agreement. Let's be in covenant with you through that Spirit so that you might manifest yourself in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.